Good morning to you all, and welcome here. If you're new or a guest, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. This little proverb was first penned, I learned this week because I did some research, by Benjamin Franklin in 1789. It was a, a letter he was writing to his friend back in France after the Constitution was formed. And he said, well, I don't, I don't know, you know, I think it's going to hold, but nothing is certain but death and taxes. And the proverb has stuck around because it's true. You and I will have to face death and taxes, but we're not going to talk about taxes today, as fun as that may be. Now, for those of you who are married, there is a guarantee that is written into your vows. Until death do us part, and it will. There's an iron and wine song, and I find the lyrics as beautiful as they are haunting. One of us will die inside these arms. One of us will scatter the ashes round the yard. It will happen. It's guaranteed. It sounds a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes to me. And so grieving, no surprises here, that is a part of being human. The death of loved ones around us, family, friends, and our own inevitable death, there is no way of getting around that reality. Many of you in this room showed up today in the throes of your own grief or surrounded by your fears about the uncertainty of your own health or maybe the prospect of your own death in its nearing. You know very personally what C.S. Lewis said when he said that grief feels like fear. It really does. Some of you, God bless you, aren't in that space right now. And perhaps you've never had to know it firsthand. That's a wonderful thing, but one day you will know it, and it's guaranteed. The question is, what do we do with it? In our Come and See series, we've been looking at these encounters with Jesus through the Gospel of John and how they address our, our, like our deepest questions, our fears, our hopes, our longings, and ultimately what we really need. Now, one of those deepest fears is death. Or more specifically, I think the deepest fear is not actually death itself, but it's the parting. It's the separation with a loved one. It's, 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 not, it's not the death itself necessarily that we find that hurts. It's the grief part is that we won't be with them. And I think it's not necessarily like the idea of life after death that our hearts ultimately long for. It's not just like existence that goes on forever that we want. What we intuitively long for is death without parting. It's not life after death, but love after death. That's what we really want. For the relationships that we value to endure and grow and deepen. So the big question that we're looking at today is how do we face grief? How do we face loss? How do we face even the prospect of our own death? We're going to dig into John chapter 11, which tells the story of Jesus and his relationship with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. So let's begin, well, at the beginning, at John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to that spot. 
And here's what we read. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And I just find that really interesting. Not Lazarus is sick, but the one you love is sick. That's interesting. We're going to come back to that. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Thank you for laughing. It is funny. And that's, exactly, that's the first point, actually. Thank you. Yeah, the first point is this. Do you see it? Verse 3, he loved. The one you love is sick. Verse 5, he loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. And when they send word, he says, I love you, I'm staying. I'm hanging back. I'm not coming. Jesus lets Lazarus die. He allows Mary and Martha to cry their guts out. And he loves them. Despite their deep grief, His love doesn't change. In a moment, we'll see that uh, Jesus will be the object of their legitimate protest. If you were here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. And guess what? Jesus doesn't argue with them because they're absolutely right. He could have prevented it. He could have stepped in. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister And Lazarus, remember that. Remember that word loved because your name belongs on that list. The one Jesus loves. True of Lazarus, true of Martha, true of Mary, true of you. And it is. So you need to know this. First thing we need to know is this. The loss and grief that you go through doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that. We might tend to think that, you know, if God loves us, that, that would mean that he never allows us to suffer loss or grief. This text tells us a different story. In fact, and we'll see, we'll see this soon enough, it tells us how far Jesus will go to love us. Now, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, Jeff uh, Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, they address this myth that goes like this, what doesn't kill me makes me weaker. They said, we function deeply out of that in our current society in North America. And this myth gets played out uh, in our society where we don't just talk about helicopter parenting anymore. Like the idea of helicopter parents, like I'm hovering over my kids to make sure they don't get hurt. No, we're now talking about snowplow parenting. This is the idea that, that parents would go in front of their kids and constantly be plowing the snow out of the way where, where there's no obstacles now for their children sparing them any sense of disappointment or discomfort or even challenge. 
And it's not just kids. The, the crazy thing is that um, university uh, professors are reporting how they get calls about their adult children in university from parents that are trying to make life easier for their children. They're adults. We're talking about adults here. There's snowplow parenting going on. Let me tell you, that's not love. Snow plowing isn't love. That's how you spoil kids. And God doesn't raise spoiled children. He weans us. He grows us. He has better things for you than your comfort. Your comfort is not the most important thing to Jesus. You becoming just like him is far more significant. So it's a false view to think that if I'm suffering, God must not love me. Or God wants my life to be easy. That's never a promise in the scriptures, and we have to remember that. So here, Jesus does let Lazarus die, and he has reasons for it that they know nothing of. He will be glorified. Jesus says that. I'm going to be glorified through this. And they are going to see the unveiling of God's glory. We just sang about it in a way they never would have without this event. And here's the thing. God is working. Again, we sang it this morning. He is working in your situation, in your grieving. When you can't see it, he's working. That is true. And now look at verse 17. Let's keep reading here. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, that's really interesting too. <laughs> like Jesus lets this community weep with the family for four days before he finally shows up. And, and, and it's interesting that, that it would even mention four days. Like, why, why even say that? Is there... And <laughs> the, the thing is, I, I, again, in my research, I found out that in rabbinic Jewish thought, the idea of the soul uh, of the deceased would hang around for three more days. But after that, no, they're actually and fully gone. Like, they, there's no return from that. So they, that, that was a thought in, in rabbinic Judaism, what they taught kind of at this time. But after four, they're truly gone. So Jesus, by his delay of four days, seems to intentionally want to be clear that Lazarus is really gone, really, really gone, so that anything he does now is without precedent ever before. Well, why does he want to do that? Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. In a moment, we're going to read more about Mary as well, but you've got two sisters here, Martha, Mary, exact same situation that they're facing. And they say verbatim the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same situation, 
But Jesus answers them in unique ways. Look again at Martha. After her initial statement of, if you had been here, look what she says next. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. She's processing this whole thing in a fairly cerebral, intellectual way. She's theologizing, you might say. How does Jesus respond to her? It's almost like he's arguing with her. He says, yeah, but let me show you more. <laughs> and, and here's, your brother will rise again, is what Jesus says. And she agrees, and then she points to the Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead on the final day, the end of history. Of course, Jesus has other things in mind, and he has other things to reveal to her and to us. His next move then isn't to simply point to the theological understanding of Jews at the time. He says, okay, resurrection, it's not just a doctrine. Uh, Martha's looking at it in that way, but Jesus points to himself, which is stunning. He says, in essence, resurrection is not just a theological idea. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Resurrection has a face and a name. The very God whom Martha has just referenced, right? God will give you what you ask her. That God is looking deep into her eyes and loving her. And he makes this promise, even in her moment of grief, about what he will do. He says this, the one who believes in me, which isn't just a cerebral process. It includes that. But it's basically to say the one who trusts in me, the one who says, okay, I'm trusting in who you are. I'm trusting in what you've done. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Yes, Lord. She's responding in faith. She's responding in faith to what Jesus has revealed of himself at the moment. Does she know everything about Jesus? No. Does she know enough to trust him? Yes. And you might not know everything about Jesus. In fact, none of us do. But do you know enough to trust him? That's what he's asking of her, and that's what he's asking of you as well. And the writer doesn't tell us what's going on inside of her. We don't get a glimpse into her internal state. It's not this moment that just made everything better for her or removed her sense of grieving. It doesn't tell us that, no, but it does root her confidence where it belongs, in Jesus. So how does Jesus meet us in our grieving? Well, here's what won't do. <laughs> here's what we can't do. Some people call it like the spiritual bypass, this idea that we can sort of outpace our need to legitimately grieve by saying things like, oh, you know what? Uh, don't weep for me. I will be with Jesus when I die. There's no need for feeling sad. Just party. It would be true to say, I'll be with Jesus. That's absolutely true. And that would bring a lot of comfort to a family. But the reality of loss, the pain of that, I mean, death hurts. Loss is painful. You, you can't sugarcoat that away. And I don't think this text is telling us to do that. There is no spiritual bypass. There is no off-ramp to dodge grief. You can't go around it. You can only go through it. There's no way to get off the hook, and I think hook is the right word for it. But there is a place 
where we all need Jesus, like Martha, to take us gently by the shoulders and look deep into our eyes and just tell us again, I am the resurrection and the life. When we think like the sisters did, you're too late. He's back. He says back to us, I'm never too late. I am the resurrection and the life. Trust me. This is the truth part. And all of us need it. All of us need it in our grieving. We need to know what is ultimately in store at the loss of a loved one, at the diagnosis that we get about our own health. We need to know some of these things. And Martha, in particular, seems to need this. She even wants it in the middle of her grief. So knowing that Jesus ultimately has life in store for those who trust him, this doesn't mean that we, we don't weep at the graveside. No, we do. But it does mean that our grief doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. He always does. We can be truly sad, but not crushed. We can lament honestly without falling into despair. No, grief doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. He always does. And his last word is, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Trust me. And so we do. At some level, we all need what Martha gets here. Jesus gives us the kind, firm reminder of that truth. But that's not all. Jesus also is revealing something remarkable about his own identity and about how we are to grieve in his next encounter with Mary. Martha comes to Jesus with theology questions, and Jesus meets her there. What does Mary need? Well, let's look at what it says next, verse 28. This is Martha. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Look again. The teacher is here, Martha said, and he's asking for you. What does Mary need? She needs to know that Jesus wants her. He's asking for you. And just look again at how she responds. Verse 29, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. She's devastated and she's running to him. She's overwhelmed, but she wants to be with the one who wants to be with her. What do you do with your grief? Do that. Because this is true for each of us. He is asking for you. If you are in a place of grieving right now, he is asking for you. He wants you to come to him. What if you just knew that? Maybe that's all you need to know today. He wants you. He wants you to come near. 
What if you knew that he wants you to know that he loves you and that he will weep with you? What if you knew that Jesus joins his broken heart to yours? Maybe that's all you need. Look what we see about Jesus' identity here as well. To Mary, the one who runs to him weeping, he simply brings his very human, vulnerable self. He says nothing to her situation, right? She says, Lord, if you were here, what does he say? Nothing. He doesn't say anything. Jesus wept. That's what happens. He says nothing to her. Lip quivering, she brings her accusation if you were here, but he doesn't say anything. Instead, he's weeping heavy tears with her. The same sense of loss fills his heart, and we read Jesus wept. He's grief-stricken. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that, and yet his heart still breaks. He is full of human emotion in this moment. Jesus cries the same kind of wet, heavy tears that we do. We're seeing that Jesus is fully human in every sense. And this is where we have to just stop and be in awe and wonder. Do you see what he's showing us? The Christian view of God is revealed here. Jesus is the one and the same as the living God who has come to us. Jesus is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator. He's the source of life. He's the source of love. And as he says to Mary, I'm the, I'm the resurrection of life. That's who he is. And he's weeping like a baby next to you. No other religion would dare to say this about God. And yet, behold, this is our God. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, weeping like a baby. For those who have been around Summit Drive for a long time, you'll know a bit of my past journey. But if you're newer here, I'm just going to share just a bit of my experience with grief as well. It was actually my dad's uh, diagnosis of pancreatic cancer that, uh, that brought my wife and I here to Summit Drive, to Kamloops. Uh, we'd been studying on the East Coast or uh, in the East, and he was in his mid-50s. I was in my mid-20s. And he was certainly going to die. He was a close friend as well as my dad. We fortunately had almost three more years together after that diagnosis, and we had some great times. He loved Jesus. He spoke of growing excited and eager to be in God's presence. It was on March 8, 2009, when, when he woke up in the presence of his Savior. Now, without my dad, my world just felt like I was trying to get my footing and it kept slipping, if I was to describe what it felt like. The one who had been that lifelong, you know, secure person, a protector, a friend, he wasn't going to pick up the phone anymore. There's this Foy Vance song, If Christopher Calls, and it still just wrecks me. In the music video, there's this note that's sitting beside a phone, and it reads, If Dad Calls, Wake Me Up and Let Me Know but the call never comes. That's, that's the grief, right? That's the parting. It took nearly six months for me to kind of really process what was going on for me, uh, and that's when it hit me really hard. I think I had just been keeping busy. I just busied myself with a million things so that I wouldn't feel it all. But it was a snowy October morning. I was deer hunting, and I was wearing my dad's beat-up old wool sweater. He called it road rash, 
because it had so many holes in it from the years of being moth-eaten and worn on hunting trips that he would wear it. And I, I had his old beat-up cowboy hat on as well. He would wear it backwards to say that he was, you know, the elk couldn't tell if he was coming or going if he had it on backwards. So that was his theory. It worked sometimes, I guess. I mean, we, we shot a lot of elk. So um, I harvested a nice four-point muley, and I couldn't call him. I couldn't call him to ha- just to celebrate, to get him to help me drag it out, and I burst into tears as I laid in the snow. That was the day it all came home. And yet, knowing that Jesus weeps with me, that God is my Father, the one who loves me and sees me, who will care for me, who's ultimately bringing the new creation, there is a horizon. Man, I needed both of those things. I needed the truth and I needed the presence. And you do too. I did call my younger brother, Jordy, though, and he showed up. He knew where to come, and, and he helped me drag it out. That was its own kind of catharsis. Jord was strong and kind, and we worked at it together, and we missed Dad together, and that really mattered. Our grieving needs connection, right? And then to make a long story short, way too short, in fact, over the next decade, I lost my older brother, Aaron, and a close friend on the same day in 2015. They were both 37, which is kind of odd. I lost another good friend in 2017, and then in 2020, my younger brother, Jordy, died at 37 as well. So I know something about grieving. I've been around the block once or twice, and there is no workaround. There is no off-ramp. There's no spiritual like, oh, there's a bypass. I just get to go around this. You don't. You can't. We can't. The truth is the hope of Jesus is experienced at one level, through the arms and acts of his people. And so one of the things I wanted to do this morning is just say thank you. Thank you for those who journeyed with us and prayed with us and just cried with us and made us meals. It really matters. So part of our grief journey is actually to be there for each other. That matters deeply, and it's mattered deeply in my grief journey. And on maybe a practical note, when you're walking with somebody who's grieving... Can I suggest that our role is to look like Jesus in his humanity, Jesus with Mary? In Romans 12, we know what to do with those who weep. It says to weep with those who weep. Our job isn't actually to give the theological answers. Jesus will speak to people through the scriptures, through sermons. Jesus will speak to people when they ask you for an answer. But the instruction for those who weep is just to weep, and that's it. Weeping is doing something. Showing up is doing something. Words usually make it worse, by the way. They do. I, I just, I've yet to find somebody who has the right words to say. If you're like, I don't have any words, please just stop there. Great. And then ask the person if you can give them a hug, because consent is good, and then give them a hug. Be like Jesus with Mary. And so I've needed this God. I've needed the God who is the truth and the life and the God who is presence and nearness. And we see again and again in the Gospel of John that when Jesus shows up, he is revealing that he is fully God. Nothing about him isn't God. And he is fully human. Nothing about him isn't human. At the same time, he's not half of each. He's not a little bit of this or that. He's not like God in a human disguise. The the scriptures tell us over and over again, he's 100% human and 100% God 
at the same time, and that is the God we need, and that is the God who is, and I'm so grateful for it. Jesus said in verse 4, it is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified, and this is it. This is God's glory, that we find out that God in Jesus is fully human for us. He came for us. That's what he's revealing here. And this is the beauty and the mystery of where God is in our grieving. It says he shares in it. When our heart breaks, God's heart breaks. Isn't that amazing? God God has a heart that is weeping right now with those who weep. And so when people say, well, what about all the suffering on the other side of the world, in the Middle East, in Ukraine? What about it? God's heart is broken. This text tells me that. The God I know is the one who weeps with people and the one who can do something about the problem of death. And that's the last part. Let's look at this together, verses 38 to 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor. The King James Version said, he stinketh. (laughs) That's my favorite part about the King James Version. (laughs) By this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes. And let him go. I want you to notice first that phrase, Jesus once more deeply moved. Deeply moved isn't a great translation, unfortunately. And it seems like no translator has really had the courage to put it plainly, which is weird because all the commentators talk about this. Um, The Greek word used here, D.A. Carson writes this about it. He says it's lexically like dictionary-wise, inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. Instead, he notes, it's it's very rarely used, this word, in the New Testament itself. You go outside of the New Testament, and it's used of a horse that's snorting in rage. It's, uh, It's used typically of anger or an outrage of emotional indignation. Why is Jesus so mad? It's his righteous fury at death itself. Jesus is facing down the final enemy, death itself, and he's mad. He's not just deeply moved, he's bellowing with rage. In the face of death, Jesus does not simply feel sadness but anger as well. Why? Because death is not God's intent. I think we intuitively know that we are not made for parting forever. Jesus is signaling something we need to grasp here. He is the resurrection and the life, and he is raising up Lazarus as a sort of picture 
of what his whole ministry is ultimately all about. This is the undoing of death, to quote the great preacher Fleming Rutledge. That's what this story is. Jesus is filled with grief and he's bellowing with rage at the same time. He's using this moment to unveil who he is, the one who can bring a dead person back from the dead, even stinking dead, as Martha says. And this isn't something any prophet in the Old Testament ever did. This is a statement of his power over death itself. His authority is the author of life. And just notice how different this is to the, the common, you might say, secular view of death in our age. What's the secular view? Well, death is just a part of life. It's, it's the Disney song, the circle of life, right? Kind of writ large. Just, just accept it. It's just a part of how things go. I think we intuitively know that just won't do. The Welsh poet and writer Dylan Thomas, he names this intuition in his words, and he writes this in his poem, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Indeed. And Jesus is raging against death itself here because he is the life with a capital L. Again, it's not just life after death, like some kind of conscious existence that our hearts long for. It's love after death. That's what we want because we're made for it. We're made for life without parting. God creates the world out of love, out of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He creates us for love, for that joyful union, and we long for it. So Jesus is looking at our greatest nightmare, the loss of a loved one, the parting forever, and he's mad. Now, this is really important to see. We've already seen with Martha, Jesus is saying, I am fully God. With Mary, he's saying, I am fully human, and now at the tomb, he's mad. So why? What is it? What is he mad about? Well, he's not mad at himself. Even though he's God, he's not mad at himself, and that tells us something really important. It means that evil and suffering and death are not God's design, that God is the one himself who is raging against that thing that you and I fear and we feel and we see. Instead, the brokenness of the world, the death that ensues, this is a result of human sin and rebellion, not what God intended. God is not the author of death. That's what this tells us. But then we might just think, and, and maybe some of you are just exploring Christianity, and this would be a legitimate question. You say, well, well then why doesn't God just like, if he's all-powerful, why does he just like come down and take out the death and the evil and the sin part? Why doesn't he just do that? Here's why. When we put the question in that way, it's like we're unaware of our own problem, our own responsibility, our own being part of the pain of the world itself. You see, so much of the misery that we see in the world is caused by the selfishness of the human heart. Pride, cruelty, violence, war. And if we're honest, we have all at some level contributed to that same problem. So God could not just strap on a sword and come and defeat and destroy evil and death without destroying us in the process. Instead, to quote Tim Keller, and it's a long quote, but it's a good one, Jesus did not come with a sword in his hand. He came with nails in his hands. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. He knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself in the grave. He knew the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own. 
That's why when Jesus approaches the tomb, instead of smiling at the prospect of putting on a great show, he is shaking with anger and has tears on his cheeks. He knew that it would cost, he knew what it would cost him to save us from death. Maybe he was able to feel the jaws of death closing in on him, and yet knowing and experiencing all that, he cried, Lazarus, come out. And just think, that's what he's doing for each of us. As Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, the onlooker said, look, see how he loved him. And the same can be said for you. See how he loved you. He would go to death itself to give you life again, life forever, life without parting. And one day, Jesus will literally say to the tomb you're buried in, come out, and you will. And you will experience real and full resurrection. Your grief will be over forever. How do we respond to all of this? In sum, we say with Mary, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe you. We weep with Mary when our hearts are broken and we find that Jesus weeps with us too. And now, perhaps not unlike Lazarus, we are all being called by Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, to get up. Yes, one day literally that will happen, but even now there's a sense of entering into the new life that he has, into this new birth that we read of in John chapter 3. What do we do with this life? We use it to honor Jesus now. I have come up out of the grave of my sin, and the old life is now dead. I am living a new life for Jesus to honor him and to help others find that life too, to point to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Jesus, this text shows us that you love us even when we're walking through the deepest grief. Even though I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist says, we, we don't need to fear evil because you're with us. And I pray, Father, for those who are here who need that deep assurance of your presence with them today. I just ask that they would experience it that the truth that you're the resurrection, the life would come so near to them and the reality that you weep alongside of them would be their experience. And for those who maybe for the first time need to come to a place to say, yes, Lord, I don't know everything, I, 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 everything about you, but I, I know enough to say I trust you. Lord, maybe this is the day where they step inside of that life. So God, we give you glory. We give you honor. May you be magnified in us, even through our suffering. Amen.